Everybody, happy graduation, everyone here at the University of Northern Colorado. It's May fifth, May. I was going to say May Day, but it's not. It's Cinco de Mayo uh, in Greeley, Colorado, from uh, UNC. Here, tons of people walking across Twentieth Street and uh, going down to get to the big graduation ceremony that they're having for the undergrads. They had the grads last night. Congratulations to all of you, and I guess all those hundreds and hundreds of people who are there right now, are, are not going to be listening to my radio show. Dave's gone by. Well, you know what? It's their loss. If they want to sit there in the hot sun and hear a bunch of speeches and a choir and, oh, see their kid in some blue robe getting up there and getting some diploma that cost $150,000 over the past four years, then okay, that's fine. If, if that's how they want to spend their time, fine. But they're going to be missing a really wonderful episode of Dave's Gone By. It's our 384th that we have done since we began this program in October 2002. Almost 10 years here, first in New York and now in Colorado. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, very proud and happy to keep doing this show, especially when I get programs like this one. Very full show. First of all, in just about 10 minutes or so, we will be talking with Jake Aaron Reich. He is an actor and kind of a monologist comedian who put together a show called A Jew, Go, uh, a Jew Grows in Brooklyn. He did it in New York back in 2006, ran for a while, and then he's been bringing it everywhere. He's been bringing it to Miami and Phoenix and all these different places. Well, 
it's come back. He's brought it back home to Off-Broadway, where it is running at the Jackie Onassis Theater. I don't know what that used to be called. That's a new name. But it's right in the heart of Midtown, 120 West 46th Street. I guess that crosses between 6th and 7th Avenue. An open run at the Onassis Theater, a Jew grows in Brooklyn, all about Aaron Reich's family and what it's like to be a post-modern, post-World War II, post-Holocaust Jew in America. And while I would be qualified to talk to him about that, I'm not going to be doing the interview, of course. The interview will be conducted by a very good friend of this program, Rabbi Saul Solomon. You often hear his rabbinical reflections on the show, his little sermons. Hasn't had time to write one again, but he will be here to talk live with Jake Ehrenreich. And um, one thing I will let all of you know, it's going to be a shorter interview than we anticipated because um, his press person just called, literally 10 seconds before I was getting on the air, to warn me that he had a terrible cold and that you know, a half hour, 45 minutes would just take too much out of him. So we're going to keep him down to about mm, 15 minutes, 15 juicy, nuggety minutes with Rabbi Saul Solomon and Jake Ehrenreich here on Dave's Gone By just a few minutes from now. Also on this episode of the show, we'll be going inside Broadway because I just got back from about a week in New York, saw a bunch of shows while I was there. So I'll go inside Broadway for Broadway news. First of all, the Tony nominations were announced a few days ago. And I will be reviewing the off-Broadway show 4,000 Miles and the on-Broadway revival of A Streetcar Named Desire. Also on Dave's Gone By today, Bob Dylan, Sooner and Later. That's where we do a bunch of Bob Dylan songs from all different times in his career from the earliest to the bootlegs to, you know, the Christmas in the Heart record and, and Modern Times and the recent records. Usually we group them around the theme. This particular theme will be France, and I'll explain why later when we get to our Bob Dylan segment. And finally, we will have our Saturday segues. We will be paying a, uh, a tribute to Adam Yauch. I, I, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Adam Yauch of the Beastie Boys, who died yesterday at the age of 47. He had been battling cancer for three years now, and it finally, finally took him. So I'm not a huge Beastie Boys fan, but some of their stuff is kind of cool, and we will, in honor of Adam Yauk, be playing some of their stuff. Also, we will be paying a tribute to the late, wonderful Pete Fornatel. Pete, <coughs> a uh, long time radio broadcaster from the early 60s in New York had, like for me, what is almost the ideal radio career, playing the kind of music usually that he wanted to, from, and I'm talking 1960s folk, pop, rock, and now what I guess they call Americana on WFUV, and being beloved by the folk and pop rock music community, having a long-running program. He's had Mixed Bag, first on NEW and now on FUV for a very long time, and doing the segues that he wanted to do, speaking, you know, rather idealistically, as he often did. And also, Pete was a guest on this show back in December of 2011. I'm so happy now, incredibly grateful, that I got to do 
that interview with him, because who I, I thought he'd have another 20 years. He was writing more books. He had written a book about Woodstock, was writing about Simon and Garfunkel, had some other stuff on the table, plus he goes and announces when there are these concerts and, and doing his weekly show on FUV. Busy, active, seemingly healthy man. And then just... And, and what's funny was I started listening back to our conversation in December that was, was on the show, and he had a cold back then, and we were talking about how he's getting over the cold and, and what he does for it, and, you know, and that was the extent of any kind of medical crises that Pete Fornatel was facing just, you know, half a year ago, and of course the stroke took him um, Thursday week, and he passed uh, about a week ago. I would, I would have done this tribute last week, but I wasn't here doing the show, I was in New York. So, a week belated, we will say farewell to Pete Fornatel with a bit of a a segue the way he would have done him, uh, which is kind of neat. And also, of course, if you go to the Dave's Gone By archives at davesgoneby.org, you can hear all our older episodes, including the one with Pete Fornatel from six months ago. Anyway, let us begin the program before we get to Jake Ehrenreich with just something that really <laughs> struck and tickled me. I was following this very, very closely and wondering what was going to happen with this. This was not just... Colorado news. This was national news, although news of sort of the weird and absurd, that over the winter, you must have heard about this, in Colorado, um, in Aspen, as a matter of fact, cows wandered into this shack, this hut in the mountains, I guess to get warm or just because out of curiosity, and being not very bright cows, they couldn't find their way out. Or by the time they realized there'd be no food in there, they stayed in this cabin and froze to death. And so they stayed there frozen the whole winter, these cows in this Aspen cabin. And now, you know, the, the nicer weather comes along, people start going up there, and they go in the cabin, and they're like, oh, wow, there are these thousands of pounds of dead cows, <laughs> dead frozen cows in this cabin. What the hell do we do? And they, they couldn't fit. Can we bring them out? Can we drag them out? Do we need cranes, helicopters? What do you do? And you know, one of the ideas, one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard, honest to God, was they were going to put explosives in the cabin. They were going to blow up the cows. I don't know why that would have been necessary. I don't. I mean, I guess as a health hazard, if you've got dead, rotting cow carcasses in a cabin, that's a problem. Why? A forklift wouldn't be the answer, I do not know. Or just burying them under tongues of dirt, I didn't know. Somebody has the idea that they're going to blow up the cabin. It's like a South Park idea, watching just the cows go kaboom. They decided after weeks of deliberation not to do that. According to, uh, let's see, what is, what is the story here? They, they decided now that they're going to carve them up. The U.S. Forest Service says um, they started out Thursday with plans to cut up the remains and scatter them. I wonder where. Uh, they believe that the cows wandered into the structure during a snowstorm and then could not get out. Forest Service officials were trying to figure out how to get rid of the dead animals before defrosting and decomposing. They explored burning or blowing up the cabin with explosives, but they decided to cut up the carcasses instead. Well, I, I think logic and reason won out there. It did remind me of the greatest um, news story almost ever 
that I ever heard about the German performance artist Wolfgang Flotz. Never forget it. Never forget his name. He wanted to make a comment about consumerism in the West and in Germany. So he was going to take a helicopter and fly a dead cow over this city, like Bremen it might have been, and fill the cow's belly with explosives. Now this was like a frozen cow. This was already a dead, you know, rotting cow carcass filled with explosives and then blow up the cow <laughs> over this city and, and just let the pieces rain down as they may. They, they stopped him from doing that. Uh, you know, it's, it's such a shame when government gets in the way of the arts, isn't it? Anywho, here, let's start our morning here on Dave's Gone By with a little sour milk cow blues from Elvis Costello.
Shalom, damn it! This is Rabbi Saul Solomon of Temple Sons of Bitches in Great Neck, New York. And you know, I have had for many, many years a body by Jake. Not the uh, Jake trainer on the TV, but the body which is basically a post-World War II, post-Holocaust Jewish body, which means I'm short, I'm kind of funny looking, I'm balding, but I do all right. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the kind of Jake that I am talking about with us on the telephone here this morning on Dave's Gone By. I'm so excited to talk to this man who created an off-Broadway show. It's called... Uh, where, where the hell are my notes? God damn it, I, I have the Torah open and then I lost my notes. It's a Jew grows in Brooklyn. It played five years ago off-Broadway. People loved it. They ran to it. They brought, they brought their grandchildren. They brought their dead ancestors to see this show because it is so funny and smart and beautiful about the Jewish experience in America, in the new world, as it were. So wonderful that he ended up bringing it to all these different places, uh, Miami, Toronto, Maryland, Chicago, even Phoenix, where, well, I guess there's Jews in Phoenix, but Jewish, Gentile, doesn't matter. You're going to love A Jew Grows in Brooklyn, and he has brought it back off-Broadway in an open run at the Jacqueline Onassis Theater. Very exciting, and we are very excited to be talking with, on the telephone, Jake Ehrenreich. Jake, can you hear me? Rabbi Saul, I can hear you. How are you? Oh, I'm good, but I hear, unfortunately, that you are not so good this morning. What's the matter? I'm a little under the weather, you know, but uh, these things happen and we, we move on. Are you having chicken soup? <laughs> I'm trying, yeah, I'm having my wife make it right now. Oh, oh, good. Force your wife to make it for you. It's always better when you force someone to do it for you rather than having you do it yourself. Well, it's always better. Listen, if you know my cooking, it's always better if anybody else makes anything that I'm going to eat. This is true. This is very true. So, so and you also, <clears throat> you have a performance today, don't you? I do. We have a performance this evening, yes. Oh, good. So you're not doing one on Shabbos. You're doing your way we, You know, we, we actually normally do. i got to tell you, Rabbi, you know, it's, but we have a, dispensa- a special dispensation because of the, the content of the show. They allow us, because it's a joyful thing, to, to do it on Shabbos. So we usually do, but this afternoon we, we don't. We're just beginning this week, and uh, there was a little scheduling thing with the theater, so the first week we don't have a, a Saturday afternoon performance. Okay, that was more information than any of us needed, but thank I you. I understand. <laughs> so, so what made you think, you know, uh, judging by your uh, your familial upbringing and your, your grandparents and all that and your parents, what at what point came to you and said, you know, there's a one-man show in this? You know, i I, I got to tell you, I really did. I, you know, I can answer you in a few different ways. But the truth is, I, you know, I was walking and, and I was thinking, what am I going to do with my life? I was success, a successful musician and, and an entertainer and an actor, and I really wanted to make a difference. And I, I decided I would tell the story of my family. You know, I'm an American. I grew up here. My parents are Holocaust survivors. My sisters were, were born in Europe as well. And, I, you know, I wanted to tell the story of an American immigrant kid from the perspective of the child, and I wanted to tell my specific story in as uplifting a way as possible um, because, you know, it's been a, a very challenging time. I mean, I, I grew up in Brooklyn. You know, I, I wanted to be an American kid. I really was. You know, I grew up in a tough neighborhood in Brooklyn. I mean, my neighborhood was so tough, mother was half a word. 
But I grew up as a First, child. By the way, excuse me. I, I just wanted to be Mickey Mantle, you know. I, I don't and, hold on, uh, hold on. I don't mean to interrupt, but yeah. you, you did not even allow me the chance to say how tough was it. Shame on you. <laughs> You're a comedian. You should know better than that. Let's do that joke again, and this time. Do I, you know, I grew up in a tough neighborhood in Brooklyn. How tough was it? It was so tough. Mother was half a word. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Much better. Yeah, Continue. I, I, I'm used to not having anybody talk to me, so I just go well, through it. Oh, myself. you're married. I get it. Okay. So, yes. I, I, that's right. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually married 15 years. Mas- Seems like 15 minutes underwater. Oh, you're only saying that because she's feeding you at the moment. I know. It, I know. Let me tell you, could you imagine I'm married 15 years, we still have sex almost every day? Do you really? Almost on Monday, almost on Tuesday, <laughs> almost... You know, you're bringing me to the Catskills. I was always afraid to get married because I always heard that marriage was like a hurricane. Is it? In the beginning, there's a lot of blowing and sucking noises. At the end, you lose your house. <laughs> you know, all right. So you're bringing me back to, to actually, you're bringing me back to an important place. You know, in the summer times, we used to go to a place called the Catskill Mountains. You know, we called it the Borscht Belt. Right. And people know, you know, the Catskills were, was a place of great humor and, and entertainment. But the truth is, for families like mine, it was very, very important place because this is where we would go with big groups of Holocaust survivors, and, and our families were almost normal. You know, this was a place where we sort of learned to laugh again. I, I, we're actually doing a documentary for PBS on, on a serious note. Um, sure. I interviewed a fellow who has essentially the same life as I do. You know, his parents are survivors. He put it very succinctly. He said, Jake, I would listen to my father cry through the locked bathroom door in Brooklyn every night. And in the summer, I would watch him laugh every night to these comedians in the nightclub. You know, so for us, the Catskills was actually a very, very important place, and we we had fun. So that, but those are the jokes. Obviously, you're, you're bringing back, me back no, to that, my youth. No, that's that's wonderful. As, as a matter youth. of fact, um, do you happen? Uh, this is totally off, off, not off the topic. But uh, when we sent out the email saying that you would be on the show, some relatives of the host of this program, Dave, uh, said, "Oh, oh, oh, do you know uh, the Rosemarins up in, in oh, upstate, New, upstate New York?" Is that true? The, well, of yeah, the cousins I know the of, of Dave, you know, there was Rivian and Jerry Rosemarin. They ran the bungalow colonies up in uh, where in Monroe. In Monroe, listen, that's where I live. My son now goes to day camp at Rosemarin's day camp in the summer. Oh, you've got to be kidding me! No, they're they are very dear friends of ours. Well, see, see are what you a kidding? small now world it is. Now the son runs it. Scott and Stacy. Scott runs it. And, and, you know, the, the parents, Bell is, was my father's, like, girlfriend. You know, not really. But Marty and Bell are dear friends of ours. And so is Scott. And I mean, the whole mishpucha. It's right down the road. Of course I know Rosemary's Bungalow Colony. What That's can I so tell you? That's so funny. i got to send this to them. It is a small... Well, the Nazis make it a whole lot smaller for us. That's what happens. So, so yeah. let me ask, if you don't mind uh, saying what your parents' Holocaust experience was. What happened to them? Sure. Yeah. You know, um, so interestingly enough, when I grew up, and this is not unusual for survivor families, my mother would, would always want to talk about her family, and um, and my father never spoke about his experience at all until much later, and then he really saw it as his obligation to speak about his experience. But in a way, we were really the, the lucky ones. You know, by a quirk of fate, my parents ended up spending the war years in work camps in Siberia, deep, deep inside Russia. This is actually where my sister Wanda was born. And then later, my sister Joni was born in a displaced persons camp in Germany. So while we lost 
you know, almost all of our relatives, all of my aunts and uncles and, and grandparents and cousins, my parents survived because they were they were actually I, this may be more information than you no, listeners no, need to know but when when Poland was divided by Germany and 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 Russia there was a place in the middle called the Pass which is a demilitarized zone and my parents were there um at the time that Germany attacked Russia and and at that time everybody ran you know the, the, my parents the displaced persons they ran with the Russian army and then they were in Russia and they were sent to Siberia and and they ended up spending the war in work camps um and that saved their life, ultimately. It's funny. Com- comparatively, compared to Bergen-Belsen, a work camp in Siberia is, a, is, is like the Ritz Hotel. Absolutely. No question about it. I was made to understand that. You know, when I when I when my mother would tell me the stories, I mean, she would talk about her family. And, I, you know, there, there are stories that I do tell in the show. I mean, i got to be honest, the show is a comedy, and there's a lot of music and a lot of joyful, you know, a lot of comedy. But the serious moments of the show are quite serious. We um, there's a, a video on stage. There's a large screen. You know, the the, the set itself is is the front of my house in Brooklyn, and the, there's a, a mus- musicians, a band on the different levels of the porch, and then where the garage would be, there's a large screen. And on that screen, we show a lot of photographs, but we also show part of my father's testimony for Steven Spielberg's Shoah Foundation. And you know, this is a. I mean, that's those are the parts of the show that are very serious. And my journey here was to tell what is essentially a serious story in as joyful a way as possible. So I, I tell a lot of jokes, and there's a lot of funny stuff, but my intention is that a serious story gets told, but it gets told in a way almost like, um, you know, a, a little sugar with your medicine, you know, makes the medicine go down easier. And, um, yeah. and, and it's been very, I've been very fortunate because um, not only have Jews come to the show, a lot of non-Jews too, and and the comments I get from them are amazing because, you know, they see the story in a different kind of way. And it's a hard story to hear. I mean, you know, let's face it, even when I'm flipping through the channels, most of the time if I see something about the Holocaust, I'll flip by it. Because unless you're really going to get into it, I mean, it's hard, you know. So um, I've chosen a little different path here. I'm very respectful um, I certainly, you know, you know if people like Rabbi Marvin Heyer, you know, the head of the Wiesenthal Center, and, and Alan Dershowitz and Michael Berenbaum, these guys are not going to put up with nonsense about the Holocaust. They've all come, and they all really, you know, speak very highly of the show. So I, I'm very respectful of the, of the topic, yeah. but I try to couch it in terms, you know, in other terms that make people, um, you know, relaxed and, and having a good time, and then they could accept that information, I think, easier. Because I have to say, I, I did my one-man show, Shalom, Dammit, an evening with Rabbi Saul <laughs> Shalom, Dammit. Shalom, <laughs> Dammit, yes. We did it in New York uh, at the Richmond Shepherd Theater just a couple of weeks ago. We're hoping to bring it back in August. And uh, people, Jews, would come up, even non-Jews would come up to me after the, the show, and they'd say, you know, Hitler had a point about you people. And I, and I felt I was doing uh, the Lord's work there. I don't know. It gets a bigger laugh in the show. I don't let that really well, die. Not, like <laughs> I got to tell you, you cut out there for a minute. It was probably oh. a good joke, but I missed part of what you said. So. Oh, so we, now we, we're even, because I screwed up one of your jokes and you screwed up one of mine. <laughs> good. We're finished. We're fantastic. We're excellent there. All right. Let, let me ask, did you have the usual... Um, American Jewish experience of this kind of, you're raised in the Jewish culture, you got the Holocaust parents, you got, I'm sure, Jewish Hebrew school and all of that. Did you reject it 
for a while and come back to it? Or did you never go through that, that youth, teen, twenties thing of saying, oh, I've had enough. I just want to be totally assimilated. Oh, are you kidding? That was my, my whole life was, you know, until much, 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 much later, I was totally assimilated. I mean, first of all, I called myself Jack because, you know, I, my name growing up was Yankee. So, you know, really? I'd be playing on a block. We, we'd all get called in for dinner. It would be Gary, Mark, Stephen, Yankee. You know, that was like the worst for me. So I became totally assimilated. I was a... Uh, you were a New York Yankee. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right. Continue. <laughs> That's right. And I, I um, you know, I became a rock and roll musician. I mean, I, I, I toured and I played with Richie Havens and Greg Allman. I, I, when Peter Chris left um, Kiss, I was one of three drummers left auditioning with them, you know, so I got to know them. Actually, two of them are children of Holocaust survivors, believe it or not. Listen, they're nice um, Jewish boys. Well, not so nice, but they're Jewish boys. Oh, yeah, no question. So, no. wait, wait, wait. Did you, but you, you, I guess you didn't make it past the final audition, but or did you ever play with them? Did you ever. Absolutely. Did, you played I with them? I was Kiss? in a room, you know, a 12 by 12 room with me and Ace and, 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 and you know, Gene, and, and I, it was just, the, the, you know, the four of us. And um, not only did I play, but I got to the point where I sang Black Diamond, and, you know, I mean, I was there. You know, there were like three guys left. Um, So, I was, look, I was originally a musician, and I was an accomplished player. I played five Broadway shows on drums and did lots of tours and lots of recordings and, uh, you know, as as a singer as well. So I was, I was very, very assimilated. And really, the way that I got back in this thing was um, I was asked to be in a show called The Golden Land, and this is this like in the early 80s, I guess. Was it the um, public theater? Was it one of the PAP things? You know, I no, I did a show for, for Joe um, PAP called Jonah. That was a different show. That was Elizabeth Sweater show. This was a show that was like half in Yiddish. And, the, and they got me. I had hair down to my shoulders, and someone told them that, oh, there's this guy, he sings well and he speaks Yiddish. And um, my father said, you know, I, and I told my dad about it. He says, oh, you got to go in and audition. I said, Dad, this is like the last thing I want to do. But I went, he says, your mother's sick, you got to go. And, you know, and I'll tell you that story about my mom. But anyway, I went in, and um, lo and behold, I ended up doing this thing. And then I met all these kind of Yiddish-speaking young people. And I thought, you know, one day I'm going to actually tell this story. This was my parents' story that show was about. And I said, one day I'm going to tell the story from my perspective. I also did Beatlemania at about that time. And I thought, I'm going to use the multimedia stuff from Beatlemania, um, and I'm going to use the story of this, and and I'm going to do this one of these days. And then about, you know, maybe 15 years later, I, I wrote this. And it's been going. I mean, you know, I just came back from L.A. and Palm Springs, and I have... You know, people like, you know, Adam Sandler and Shecky Green and then Billy Crystal, all these guys. I mean, it's, the show has gone nuts. That's and um, there's fantastic. a book now by the, the Chicken Soup for the Soul publishers, and there's this PBS documentary. I, I really am incredibly fortunate. Uh, and I'll tell you one thing that my wife said, you know, what, what you don't know is that part of this story is that my mom and both of my sisters developed early Alzheimer's disease. And my sister Joni passed away when she was 55 and Wanda is is in a nursing home now. She's 67. And my mom was in a nursing home by the time she was in her early 60s. So it's really sort of a disastrous family. You know, the stress of what happened really, really sort of destroyed my family. But I have a beautiful wife and a beautiful son, and I'm, I'm very positive about life. And my wife said the most important thing you could do with your talent in this show is just to sort of give people a sense of that they can overcome their circumstances. And that's really the overall view of the show, 
It's it's not supposed to be a Jewish show necessarily. It's supposed to be just a show, you know, about life and about how we can really focus on the positive in our lives, not in a in a in a simple way, but in a deep way. And that and you could really guide your journey if you do that. And and that's what I've tried to do and and I'm lucky because people get it. Well, can I ask you though, do do you have a fear? That, what are you, 56 years old, 57? How old are you? Yeah, I'm 56 now, I think. 50, 50, <laughs> I never really know how old I am. But I think I have turned 56 in February. I'm either 55 or 56. Well, well, there you go. When you forget something like that, or if you can't think of somebody's name, do you get the little chill in your spine thinking, oh, oh, it's starting? I, you know, I can't tell you how many times. It's a good question, but I'm, I'm asked it often. And as a matter of fact, I've been contacted by several research organizations wanting to do some testing on me because it's so prevalent in my family. I will tell you this. My point of view about it is that, you know, we all have some genetic predisposition to some ailment. You know, some families have heart disease, some families have, have Alzheimer's, right? I'm convinced that the, the remedy for this is to, to live as joyfully as possible, to be as positive as possible, and that will affect your constitution and, and really ameliorate the, the effects of whatever your genetic predisposition is. I feel strongly about that, and when I get stressed out about something, I sort of remember, you know, that if I'm not careful, you know, for the grace of God, there go I. You know, so that's the way I choose to deal with it. There is no treatment, you know. Right. Um, and so far, I could still remember what I'm saying. So let's, you know, <laughs> I'm looking forward to uh, a long and, and fruitful life. And doing the show is also a very good thing to boost your memory, to keep the, the neurons and the synapses going and all that, I think. It's, it's forcing I you think to... so. And I try, you know, I try very, very hard not to make the show a script because it's a very, very personal show. And there are there are certain parts in the show where people yell out to me, you know, and and I converse with them, and we have these kinds of uh, you know little little sessions, and uh, it helps me because it helps me to stay in the moment, you know, and make sure that I'm really present because I've done the show thousands of times, you know, I I upgrade it, I change things um, depending on the audience, and some of the greatest things have been, you know. With, with audience members. I mean, the things people say are really, you know, funnier than anything I could say. Well, can you, do you remember any particular funny or interesting or wild anecdotes that you've heard from audience members either sure, during the show sure, or Sure, sure, I do. Yeah, I do. Well, we have me. a place in the show where I can announce, you know, I do a recreation of a Catskill Mountains nightclub. And as the MC, I announce birthdays, you know, I do all this kind of stuff. And we let people email in, and along with the fictitious funny birthdays that I'm mentioning, I could mention a real birthday. So we got this email, this woman is 92 years old, and I mentioned her name, and I said, oh, and you know what, I just usually mention her, mention the person's name, and then I move on. Meanwhile, I mentioned her name, she gets up, she says, oh, wait a minute, that's me, that's me. And she starts going into a whole thing, and you know, people are hysterical, because she's really, she's really with it, and really like, you know, like a politician, she's really going for it. So I said, sweetheart, you've got to be kidding. You're 92 years old? So tell me, please, tell us all, what is the secret? She says, the secret is the three Ps. I said, all right, now I see. She's got like a whole routine, this chick. I said, okay, I'll bite. What are the three Ps? She says, no pets, no plants, no penises. <laughs> so everybody cracks up, right? And, and she's really serious. I said, so wh- what is this? 
my wife um, asks her later, after, at the end of the show, my wife happened to be there, and this was the worst part of it. She goes up to her, she says, let me ask you a question. Why no plants? <laughs> so my wife gets it, like no penises is real. Is, of course. Is, right. You know, it's reasonable, right? But I asked the lady, I said, why? Why those three things? She says, I don't want to have anything that I have to take care of. Oh, it's great. I mean, people, and she was dead serious, man. It was very funny. Um, and we have a lot of stuff like that. I have a, a thing that that a guy yelled out that I now keep in the show. I just tell people about it. So on the screen, um, there's a period where I put up an old business card of my father's uh, store in Brooklyn. He had a, a furniture store, the Gem Upholstery uh, the Furniture Center, right? And a guy yells out out of the audience right when this comes up. He says, wait a minute, that's your father? I knew your father. Uh, hey, we bought a beautiful sofa at the store. So I said, you're kidding. What a coincidence. You still have the sofa? He says, no, no, but I don't have that wife anymore either, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. And then I tell you, you know what I say now? It's funny because I thought in my mind, why doesn't this man have his sofa? You know, did this guy not put plastic slip covers <laughs> on his furniture? <laughs> And we all laughed. You know, so a lot of things about the, uh, the the audience make make me laugh, and it keeps me on my toes. I have a great audience, always. That's, that's, that's terrific. It's wonderful. We just have another uh, moment or two with Jake Ehrenreich. And I, uh, first of all, I want to thank you so much. I can hear you powering uh, past your, your illness, your cold. <laughs> thank you. But, yeah, it's, but, my voice is a little, you can hear, I'm a little shot. Abyssal, I bet, and you do have to do a show later than this uh, you know, tonight. And, but you are in an open run at the Jackie Onassis Theater in New yes, York. Yes, the Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis Theater, right in the heart of Broadway, 120 West 46th Street. Unbelievable, right? Exactly. Between 6th and 7th. I mean, the corner is the TKTS booth. And it's great. It was, you know, the last time we were there, we were at the Lambs Theater on West 44th Street, which was also great. They tore that down, so now we found another place to be. Mazel. And you're there, is it eight shows a week, a normal playing thing? Well, there's seven shows a week. Um, I do I, I do Wednesday through Sunday. I don't do Tuesday. I get two days off, you know, to, to be with my my son, my fourteen year old son now, and, and my wife. So that's cool. And I get I don't know. I guess I should give you the the numbers. Yeah, with, um, to buy tickets, of course. Yeah. All right. It's eight six six eight one one four one one one. Say it again. Um, or, or they could go, uh, you know, ajugrosenbrooklyn dot com, and you could buy tickets through there. Eight six six eight one one four one 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 for tickets to a Jew grows in Brooklyn, or you can go to JewGrowsInBrooklyn dot com for tickets and more information about Jake Ehrenreich. And uh, let, let me ask one of the uh, over the past few weeks, we've been talking to a lot of uh, solo people and monologue and off Broadway kind of people because I've been doing my show and I've become very interested in that mm. and. Some of these people, like the the accidental pervert guy, uh, also Jewish, of course, and uh, Steve Solomon, who's been doing his Jewish show, a lot of them, they end up becoming so successful that their show goes on with somebody else playing them. Has that happened to you yet? You know, interestingly enough, we've been asked this a number of times, and and the truth is that when my father got ill um, in New York, you know, I, I spoke to, to my producing partners, and I said, look, if my father's about to die, I'm, I'm not going on, so we better find somebody. And we did find somebody, and he went on about nine or ten times when my father was very ill. 
And then when my father passed, I just stopped doing the show. You know, right now, um, we've been asked to do this a number of times. We have not agreed yet. Uh, I know Steve does it. And, you know, uh, it's a very personal show. So I imagine eventually, you know, um, we have a, a few other things cooking, like I have a TV show that's going to start. So there may come a time when, when we want the show to be out there, and I, I may not be available to do it. We'll think about if that's uh, appropriate. But but so far, we, we have decided sort of, you know, n- not to do that. So I don't know if we ever will. My wife is, like, dead set against it. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. You know, we may have to rewrite it if uh, a bit if we do that. But and it's, it's besides Canada, personal. Besides Canada, have you done this show in other countries? No, we stayed in North America. I mean, this winter we did Palm Springs and, and Los Angeles for the second time. And then we did, you know, we do big theaters. We, we were in uh, Sarasota and Tampa and 2,000-seat theaters. We went back to Fort Lauderdale at the Parker Playhouse. And we've been all over North America. We were in Toronto with the Mervish Company, who they're the biggest producers yeah. in Toronto, at the Panasonic Theater. That was great. And it's, um, you know, we've been so busy in North America that we haven't traveled abroad. But we've been asked to go to Israel and Australia and South Africa. And, you know, I, for me to go with my family, I would really just go with my family. So we have to figure out a time when my son isn't in school and all that. This is like, a, you know, it's a, it's like a family uh, <laughs> kind of... I understand. Your um, project almost now. And there are so many other things going on here. We have a screenplay that went to Billy Crystal and Adam Sandler. So, you know, it's hard to, to leave town. I guess we would go to Israel um, because that would be a great family trip. So we're thinking about doing that maybe for three weeks um, next year, take a little break in New York. But we'll probably be running in New York for, for years. God I mean, willing. That's the, that's the idea. So you're, now, so you're not in, living in California. Family is in New York with you, or do you fly at the end of the week to be with your family in California? No, you know, we did not. We were going to move to California because um, we had been asked. There's a, a few um, television or film things going. But my son is entering high school next year, so we had to make a decision. We were either going to all move out there um, and sort of uproot him and, and make a, a new life, or we would just stay here. And we decided ultimately um, just for him, you know, to, to stay here so he'll he'll go to high school, you know, locally. And so we reopened the show in New York as opposed to doing it in L.A. And I'll fly out there when, when I need to. So we stayed in New York. Um, we have a beautiful place in Monroe, New York, you know, right near Rosemary. Right. Um, so we made we made the decision to sort of stay home at least for the next, um, I guess, his high school period about about four years, I guess. Wonderful, wonderful. We've been talking with Jake Aaron Reich. Very last question for him. He is the uh, the cast and the writer of. A Jew grows in Brooklyn, playing at the Jacqueline Kennedy on SS Theater on 120 West 46th Street. Last question to let, now. Let me let me interrupt for a minute because oh, I don't want to get myself in trouble. So there are three other people on stage with me. Oh, um, it's not me. like a Steve yeah. show. There's there's a live band and they they sing and they play and they're on stage with me. So uh, sometimes people do refer to it as a one man show and and you know I do most of the talking, but I don't want to downplay their, their role. They're very important and they're excellent and very very talented musicians and singers. So are, are they I want Jewish? to give them their due. Are they Jewish? Uh, you know, some are and some aren't. And we've had, you know, all, we've always had you know, multiracial bands and all, all stuff going on. We have just the best musicians we could get. 
Um, so, yeah, they don't have to be Jewish. And you don't even have to be Jewish to, to come to the show. You don't. You don't. It helps, but you don't have to. So, you know, interestingly it, enough, yeah. I, and I, I feel very gratified about this, reviewers go out of their way, like the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times and Broadway, where all these reviewers went out of their way to say, look, you know what, aside from the name of the show, you really don't have to be Jewish um, to see it. And, and I take great pride in that because... The original title of the show was not A Jew Grows in Brooklyn. The original title of the show was Growing Up in America, because it was not supposed to be a Jewish show. Although the story is very Jewish, but it's, I, I look at it as a more universal story about life. But we were cautioned when we started in New York the first time. A very smart producer friend of mine said, look, you know what? You don't have like $10 million to, to, to throw into advertising. You better pick some group somewhere that's going to come to the show and then spread the word. Otherwise, you know, growing up in America, I mean, you're down the, down the block from Jersey Boys. You know, you're never going to survive. So we changed it, you know, and, and it worked out well. So, um, you know, I'm pleased. But, but it, you know, it's supposed to be a pretty generic show, even though the story is very specific. I get, no, I totally get it. It's like Fiddler on the Roof for Presbyterians. It works. You know what? Interestingly enough, okay, I'll buy that. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly enough, what? No, that right. That, I mean, that's a, a, an interesting comparison because um, Fiddler on the Roof. You couldn't be a more Jewish show than Fiddler on the Roof, but the themes in the show are a universal theme of family and 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 culture. So, in that way, yeah, I think that that's that's probably right. So, would you say that it is harder now, or easier, or a mix being Jewish? in America in 2012 than it was when you were growing up in the 60s and then 1970s? Well, you know, that is actually um, quite a, a, an intelligent question. <laughs> I, don't I know, I don't know how it came out of me. But, no, the reason is because on a certain level, I think um, it's easier, basically because multiculturalism is more... Um, Accepted, you know. In in those days, it really was be American, be American. Now, I think um, the immigrant experience being multicultural is is sort of hip, you know, and it's it's cool, and it's okay to have a different kind of name and all of that. On the other hand, I don't think that there is an easy answer at any time in in the world um, to say is it easy to be a Jew. It's certainly easier right now in the United States to be a Jew than it was in the United States or anywhere else in the world. On the other hand, you know, you got to sort of keep the pulse on, on, you know, on what's happening in the world. And things are certainly changing in Europe and, and, and elsewhere. And, um, you know, it's like a tinderbox. I mean, I, could, I feel it. Maybe I'm more sensitive to it because of my family's history. Um, but, but it, you know, it's, it's a good time and also a, a you know, a, a time to be cautious, I think. Well... We are being, we are not being cautious at all in thanking with open arms and gratitude Jake Ehrenreich for being in the neighborhood, for talking to us, for telling us about his life, his family, and his show. A Jew grows in Brooklyn at the Onassis Theater on West 46th Street in Manhattan, 866-811-4111, or a Jew grows in Brooklyn. Is it dot com or dot org again? Yeah, it's dot com. Dot com. Oh, you even got the dot com. That's thinking like a Jewish person right there. <laughs> Smart. Grab the com. Anyway, thank you. Have a wonderful show. Feel better. And thank much you, Rabbi Sal. You know, we say in the old country, not what that I'm from the old country, Zygazint for Weinmit Mazel. To you. You know what that means? Be well, and it should be with luck. I, 
I bounce that back on you double. Double, Thank double, you. double. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, sir. Have Bye-bye.
the Beastie Boys there. Not not usually the kind of music that I play on Dave's Gone By. It's a little too raucous, a little too party music-ish for me, especially on a Saturday morning. But paying a bit of a tribute to Adam Yauch, the late Adam Yauch, 47 years old. He was um, His moniker as part of the Beastie Boys was MCA. He died of cancer on May 4th. He had this um, tumor on his salivary gland, diagnosed back in 2009, so he's been fighting it for three years now, and he just took a turn for the worse over the last two weeks, and so we lost him. And it's funny, they um, maybe just a year too late, they inducted the Beastie Boys into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame just a couple of weeks ago, and he was too ill to attend. So, but at least I guess he knew. He, he heard, he learned that the band made the Hall of Fame. So I guess that's kind of nice. Might have been, you know, obviously good if they could have been inducted a year earlier. Who knows? Anyway, well, he's, he's been sick for three years, so could have been just as bad then anyway. Uh, the Beastie Boys came to the fore. They were a real MTV generation band. They had this novelty song called Cookie Puss, and then they put out their 1986 album Licensed to Ill, which came out of nowhere. It was just this huge hit and essentially gave the white kids permission to listen to rap. I mean, it was that and I guess, what else? There was Blondie doing Rapture and there there was Aerosmith and Run DMC combining on uh, Walk This Way, but and it was still before Eminem. So there was this this gap in there, and nobody was listening to Vanilla Ice if he was even around. And suddenly there was these these kids who hung out there and said, "Okay, we're going to do our heavy style rap, but with very very hard crunchy guitar oriented rock music, really pounding." And I guess one of the things that I do like about the Beastie Boys, as I said, I'm, they're not a band I'm particularly ever cared for. And I, even now, listening to their records and their stuff, it's very noisy, and some of it's kind of fun, but I, I just can't really get into it. But I appreciate that sense of humor and that other perspective. They're, they're not trying to be um, Eminem psychodrama, and they're not... They're also, back in the mid-1980s, I guess they were a response to the gangster rap and also the, the total, like, I'm a big shot pimping kind of big black man and I got 25 girlfriends and they give me their bling and I'm a better rapper than anybody else and I've come down the street in my car and my Cadillac whatever it is and you know I'm shooting people and popping caps in people's asses and, and, and here you have these kids these I think they're all Jewish or two of them are Adam Horowitz is, of course, the son of uh, playwright Israel Horowitz. So these were spoon-fed middle-class, upper-middle-class kids, in a way. And they came out there and they said, well, we're not playing big, tough, black, or even white gangsters. We're just, you know, kids who want to have fun. We want to party. We want to fight to our right, for our right to party. We want to make funny songs, have cute rhymes. We, I mean, we want to rock hard and we want to sing and, and do hard kind of screaming raps. But it's a different perspective. We're, we're just, we're having fun. You know, we love the music. We love the feel of the music. We love the sound of it. We love rhyming and rapping. And that's all we're doing. We're not saying we're better than anybody else. We're not in these, these wars of East Coast and West Coast. We're just funny, young, white, Jewish, nerdy kids. And we're going to make the music that we want to make in this rap, hard rock way. And that's what they did. So I applaud them 
for that. Horowitz, Mike Diamond, and of course the late Adam Yauk, who is as much kind of known behind the scenes as he was in front of it. He directed a few of the uh, Beastie Boys videos a couple of years ago he, when he was before he got really sick. He directed a documentary about high school basketball. So, um, you know, he leaves that behind. He also leaves behind a wife and a 13-year-old daughter. So it's 11 o'clock as we speak on Dave's Gone By in uh, Greeley, Colorado. He's coming to you from the University of Northern Colorado. You're listening to us on uncradio.com. We have other stuff to do in the show, but let's play a little more Beastie Boys music in honor of the late Adam Yauch. This is one of the more fun ones. This is like a song that you would hear or did hear on the Dr. Demento show way back when. I appreciate these kinds of novelty things. This is really fun. This is Girls from Licensed to Ill. Rock the mic. 
Oh, yes, indeed, it's fun time. Fun time. Love that riff from the Beastie Boys. Got to be my favorite song of theirs because that I can just hear that flute riff over and over again. That's Sure Shot from Ill Communication. We also heard Girls, that novelty song that they did. Wish wish they also did more fun, cute, melodic songs like that uh, in their arsenal. And we heard No Sleep Till Brooklyn, um, also in, in honor of uh, Jake Ehrenreich and his show. A Jew Grows in Brooklyn. So I was talking about Brooklyn theme there and Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. It's 11.06 in the morning here at UNC, the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. Let me bring the mic up a little bit. That's a little better. In Greeley, Colorado, it is 66 degrees outside. Beautiful day, perfect kind of a day for a graduation or for hundreds and hundreds of graduations that are occurring right now. So mazel tov to everybody who's out there. And uh, just want to let you know, you know, if, if you're on the lawn, if you're in the campus, if you're, uh, I guess they're all on the football field uh, where, where the ceremony would be. So they're going to miss this episode. They will have missed that delightful conversation with Jake Ehrenreich, our tribute to Adam Yauch of the Beastie Boys. They will miss our Inside Broadway segment and our Bob Dylan segment and our, our segue devoted to the late Pete Fornatel, the radio host. All of that they're not going to get to hear, but that's okay, because they can go to davesgoneby.com and scroll through and listen to this episode, as well as hundreds of Almost every other episode that we have ever done on this program are archived and saved absolutely for free at that website, davesgoneby.com. Just go to the home page. If you scroll down, you'll see, first of all, the, uh, the shows listed by the guests who have appeared uh, alphabetically by their last name. So if you want to hear our interview with Tom Paxton or you want to hear our interview with Jill Sobule or with... Gosh, Carol Channing, or with Karen Mason, or Reckless Eric, or uh, Christine Lavin. I mean, just these wonderful people in music and theater and art and books, and Joe Franklin, for goodness sakes, and and, uh, the opera fanatic, uh, Stefan Zucker, all of them. Just zip down our homepage at davesgoneby.com, and you'll see, and be able to click and either load the, uh, the show to your iPod, or you can load it to your your um, 
your computer just to your hard drive, but if you click the other way, it'll just stream on your computer without actually downloading. So you have two options for listening to our wonderful show and for listening to all these hundreds of episodes that we have done since 2002. And um, also, don't forget that... Uh, what else do I want to tell you? Oh, if you want to write to me, you can email me, davesgongby at aol.com. That'll put you on our mailing list, so you get our weekly mailer, letting you know who's going to be on upcoming shows and what else we're doing. Or um, you can just tell me what you want to see, or hear, I should say, on the show. Suggestions for guests, your thoughts about past programs, um, songs you want to hear, all of that. davesgongby at aol.com. You know, I've been thinking again a lot about the idea of free-form radio, of what it means to have just a person at the mic with some music at his disposal, not CDs anymore, they're, they're MP3s, I admit that, and a board, you know, and that's it. It's not playlists that are constructed in Texas by some corporation. It's not the same playlist that's going out to, you know, a dozen different radio stations that they all have to play the same songs, just different local commercials. And it, and it isn't just formatted top 40 stuff. It's somebody with half a brain and a whole microphone just saying, I'm going to do one, two, three hours of radio, and I'm going to play the music I care about, you know, with a mix of the music that you want to hear and a mix of the, the music that's coming out new so that there's there's all of that. And telling you what I feel and sharing things. And, you know, it's the most important, the most valuable, the only real kind of radio, I feel, uh, especially in this day and age, because there's so little of it. Or at least so little on the regular airwaves, perhaps on the Internet, that has exploded in a different way. But uh, you know, the loss of Pete Fornatel has definitely made me reconsider again how radio people do what they do and, and when they can fit through the margins and not be constricted by playlists or stomped on by pro programmers and experts in, well, this demographic really wants this, and we've run, we've run the volumetrics. We know that uh, they're going to really want to hear this song every two hours. Ugh. Ugh. Away from that. Uh, but still, it's about connecting one-on-one -on -one with every single person who's listening. And if you want to do that to me, davesgoneby at aol.com is the email address. D-A-V-E-S-G-O-N-E-B-Y at aol.com. And, uh, and let me hear your thoughts, because I give you three hours every week where you can hear mine. It's only fair that it works both ways. And let me also tell you the weather in Greeley, Colorado. It's fair out there. It's really, really nice. It's not too sunny and hot. And at 66, it's going to go up, though, to 85 degrees, hopefully after all the ceremonies are done. So these poor kids aren't melting in their robes. And, you know, they, they take these, these dyed robes off and their skin is blue for a week. Hopefully we won't have that. Um, Mix of clouds and sun all day today. Let's see what else. But we might get some showers in the evening. That'll clear off some of that, that heat that we're going to be having. Low near 40 degrees. And then sunny skies earlier tomorrow. Not going to get as warm. A few showers later in the day. High only up to 67. 
well, that's, that's actually a perfect temperature if it doesn't rain. But they do have a 30% chance of rain tonight and tomorrow. And tomorrow evening, showers too. Monday, showers again. Again, high in the mid-60s, low in the mid-30s. Then Tuesday starts to crawl up again back into the low 70s. So, yeah, we're going to see some wet weather here and there. You might want to carry an umbrella around. Scattered showers if you're doing some barbecuing or if uh, people are packing up. I'm moving away from Greeley for the summer now that the kids are out of the university here. So, uh, yeah, Mother Nature might throw us a couple of curveballs, but still, nothing too much to complain about. It is 11.13 a.m. You're listening to Dave's Gone By with me, Dave Lefkowitz. Let's get to Inside Broadway. I'm excited to talk about this because I went back to New York again. I had a conference to go to there and saw some family and some friends and did my, my New York experience, which included a bit of theater on the subway train. Now, you know, for a while, they really cracked down Year, few years ago, I guess, like, uh, during the Giuliani era, on the subway begging and the panhandling, because it just got so... I mean, you couldn't walk into a subway car without somebody having his hand out and saying, uh, I don't mean to bother you, I lost my ears in Vietnam, can you give me... You know, or, or well, I don't want your money, but if you have half a sandwich, if you have an apple... you know, And I feel sorry for them, I do... But I don't want to be bothered, and a train is like an airplane. You don't want to be cornered in this trapped place with something that is heightening your fear or panic response. You just want complete calm normalcy. It's why, you know, everybody gets really, really head up when high school kids get on the subway train in the middle of the day. And they're boisterous, and they're yelling, and they're crazy, and they're swinging around the poles. And it's, it's worse than just seeing them on the street, because there's, there's no exit. You are trapped in there with the volume, with the energy, um, with the volatility of that. So you don't want people on the subway platforms, or, or on the cars, especially, asking you for money. And for a while, I think Giuliani did a quality of life thing, and, and, and it stopped. But Bloomberg's not paying as much attention to that, so it is omnipresent. It is all the time now. You get on one subway car to go just a couple of stops, and you will be hit up twice or three times by three different people asking you for money. And again, also, I don't mean to be a cruel, callous ex-New Yorker, but there are ways to get charity for people who, who need or want that. You know, it's like it is. I think it still maybe even be sort of illegal to panhandle on a subway car. I'm not sure. You know, there, there, there are they can go to. The, I know it's not a nice thing, but they can go to soup kitchens and places to stay and ask for charity and help in very you know set up ways. Not going on a train and sort of bothering people. That said, I did have the best panhandling experience of my recollection on my trip back to New York last week. Um, it was my first day. It was my first day back in the city after being away for a month or so. And get on the subway car, and I hear, you know, hello, ladies and gentlemen, I'll, you know, as soon as the door closes, hello, ladies and gentlemen, don't mean to bother you. And then I hear that, we're going we're gonna to sing for you. We're going to do Proud Mary. And I look over, and dressed to the absolute nines are this pair of very large, not fat, but just big, like, man-like 
transvestites. But it wasn't just that they were men dressed as women. They, I mean, they were fully costumed, gowned, made up, wigs, like something out of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, stepping into a subway car. And I just seen Priscilla, Queen of the Desert on my last trip to New York. So I, I even had that in my mind. And they start doing Proud Mary, first a little slow, and then they go into the whole Tina Turner thing. And Proud Mary, keep on burning, rolling, 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 rolling. And amazingly enough, I and almost everybody else in this pretty crowded subway car started smiling. For once, we were actually happy to hear <laughs> panhandling singers on a subway car. There was just something fun about it. It was lively. It was an evening. They weren't... Uh, I don't know what the difference is. There wasn't a desperation in what they were doing, really. There was a joy in it. It was performance art more than, you know, um, you have to listen to me and please, please give me money because I've got no other way to do it. No, it, it seemed like a couple of people were just doing this for fun, and if they made some money, that, that'd be great, too. So I, I, I give them credit for that, in a way. Not that I... that suddenly is the exception that proves the rule that everybody should be allowed to panhandle and sing and, and make a commotion on a subway car. Because as soon as they stepped off, they stayed on for the length of the song, which was two stops going um, you know, to midtown Manhattan. But literally, as they get off, somebody else gets on with an acoustic guitar and starts singing what seemed to be a rather pretty song about Jesus' resurrection. And I'm like, okay... It's New York. It's back. We're listening to this now. And, <laughs> and the whole mood was like, okay. You know, the, the magic had broken. But it made me even understand that scene in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Uh, I, I don't really remember the movie that well, but in the Broadway show, which I guess follows the movie, where they're, they're stuck, their bus breaks down in this tiny, tiny small town in Australia where there's just, like, bikers and rednecks and lower class, white trap, whatever you want to call it. You, you know what I'm talking about. And they go into the local bar, which is basically where people with gangs and muscle tattoos beat each other up with pool, cu pool cues after they get drunk. And they go in there absolutely terrified, you know, uh, just for a beverage and to, to try and get some help to fix their van. And they walk in, and the, you know, everybody's staring at them, and there's, there's some fear and anger involved. And then they start... Um, doing a little bit of the, the, their music, of doing what they do. And, boom, the jukebox goes on, and somebody's having, everybody's having the most fabulous time. They're, they're dancing, they're singing, they're, they're, they're lifting the uh, transvestites uh, you know, up in the air so they can sing and dance on the bar. And everybody has a, a, a wonderful moment. And it's one of the, the fun parts of the show. And I felt that. I felt that, you know, that's a real scene, because it sort of happened in a much smaller way on that E-train that I was about a week ago. So that, that was my little bit of real street New York urban theater. But I also did some theater while in town, and I'll, uh, I'll be telling you about that. But first on Inside Broadway, let's get to some Broadway news. You know, the, uh, the season ended a week ago. We're already into the brand new 2012-2013 Broadway season. Only a few shows have been announced for it so far, but one of them is The Big Knife. It's a revival of uh, Clifford Odette's play that hasn't been done since the late 1940s, and it's all about this actor who's being protected by the Hollywood studio system, even though he has a deep 
secret. Um, the press materials aren't saying what the secret is, but I think we all can guess, speaking of transvestites. But anyway, um, it's going to be at, uh, where's it going to be done? In March, they're going to bring it to Broadway next March. Doug, <coughs> pardon me, Doug Hughes is going to be directing the show, and it will star Bobby Cannavale, this ubiquitous actor from, uh, well, he was on Will and Grace, and he's also, I think, isn't he dating or married to Sutton Foster at this point in real life? Plus, he's done a bunch of movies, very, very talented guy. Bobby Cannavale will be in The Big Knife in March on Broadway. And then, a show that was supposed to come to Broadway this past season, but it didn't happen. It ran into money trouble. It was a big, expensive show, and they lost one of their big backers. I guess they found new ones, because Rebecca is back. The Broadway musical, based on the Daphne du Maurier novel and the, the movie, the famous movie as well, is going to come to Broadway's Broadhurst Theater in November. The book is by Michael Kungs. The music is by Sylvester LeVay, and it's going to star James Barbara, Barbara, excuse me, James Barber, Sierra Bogus, who was the Little Mermaid at one point, and Karen Mason, a guest on Dave's Gone By a few years back. So congratulations to her, and we'll be seeing her on Broadway in Rebecca in November. Well... The other big news, of course, with the Broadway season ending means that a week ago was the cutoff date for shows to open in order to be considered for a Tony Award this season. And now, so the 66th annual Tony Awards will be held on June 10th at New York City's Beacon Theater. Uh, the leading candidate of musicals is Once which I'm very, very happy about. That's probably my favorite show of the season that I've seen on Broadway. Uh, the musicals that were nominated for a Best Musical Tony include Once, Newsies, Leap of Faith, and Nice Work If You Can Get It, Ghost, which I saw on this past trip, got skunked. It didn't get anything. And um, a couple of other musicals got skunked as well. Leap of Faith is sort of the, the wild card there. It got a terrible review in the New York Times, which, I mean, okay, a lot of shows get that anyway, but very few people had really wonderful, loving things to say about that Broadway show, but I guess they um, they want so much for it to have a shot. It opened at just the right time, so I, I think the producers or whoever is voting for these Tonys is saying, look... You know, we can throw our vote away on a show that's already closed or something else, but if Leap of Faith has some kind of chance to run or go on tour or something and conquer its mediocre to bad reviews, then, you know, maybe this Tony Award nomination will, will make it happen. I have not seen the show. I did not get to see it when I was in New York. And um, at the time, I was kind of worried because I figured it would close immediately, considering it had no advance and that the, the reviews were so bad. But, well, you know, they're running it. They're trying. So, and now it got itself a Tony nomination. So, congratulations. Maybe they'll keep it going. And if, you know, if the people have a different say from what the critics feel, then it might do all right. I mean, I think Ghost will have that experience. Ghost did not get a good review in the Times. And a lot of the critics were very wishy-washy about it. And yet, I think audiences are kind of digging it. And I think it will have a shot to run quite a few months, if not necessarily break even. 
And then Ghost will, of course, have a problem taking itself on the road just because it's such a massive undertaking as far as projections and the whole design of it. But anyway, I'm, I'm not going to be reviewing Ghost now. I'll, I'll talk about that in an upcoming show. But congratulations to the four nominees for Best Musical, including uh, Wonks and Newsies, both very, very entertaining pieces of work, and glad I saw both of those shows. And uh, nice work if you can get it, which, again, unfortunately, I uh, could not see on my trip. As far as plays go, the Pulitzer-winning Clybourne Park got a Best Play Tony nomination, as did other desert cities, Peter and the Starcatcher and Venus in Fur. Uh, not getting nominations were Seminar, the Teresa Rebeck play, and the, uh, the basketball play Magic Bird, both of which announced closings immediately after the Tony nominations came out. So those aren't going to stick around. They're closing in the week or so. Um, and then the other show that I did see called The Lions, the Nikki Silver play, that I liked very, very much, uh, that did not get a Tony nomination for Best Play. I'm a little bit sorry about that, but I can't really say anything because I didn't see any of the other nominees. As far as uh, Best Actress nominees, you've got Stockard Channing, Linda Lavin, yay, Linda, wonderful in The Lions, and also she was a guest on this program a few, uh, few months back. Cynthia Nixon, Nina Arianda of Venus and Fur, and Tracy Bennett. It, wait, how do they all... How did Tracy Bennett get in that category? See, Tracy Bennett is in End of the Rainbow, which is a biographical look at the very, very end of Judy Garland's life. I assumed it was a musical. I guess they're calling it a play with music. Maybe it isn't a musical at all. I, I thought it was. Anywho, so she's in there with all these other actresses who are in straight plays. The actors for best... Um, well, for the 2011-2012 Tony Awards, the nominees are James Earl Jones, Philip Seymour Hoffman for Death of a Salesman, Frank Langella, John Lithgow for The Columnist, and James Corden, so very, very funny, in One Man, Two Governors. And I'll just run down the uh, featured actress categories for you. Danny Burstyn, another former Dave's Gone By guest, Jeremy Jordan, Steve Casey from Once, Norm Lewis from Porgy and Bess, and Ron Raines from that wonderful revival of Follies. And Best Actress, Audra McDonald, Jan Maxwell, Christine Milioti, Kelly O'Hara, and Laura Osnes from um, Bonnie and Clyde. Well, that got a nomination. That's kind of cool. So, anywho, those are the nominees for some of the categories of the 66th annual Tony Awards. They're happening June 10th at New York City's Beacon Theater, and we here at Dave's Gone By hopefully will be doing our annual Tony Awards show either that Sunday morning or the Saturday before it. We usually do three to four hours talking to a lot of theater experts, playing a lot of theater music. Keep you know, posting at davesgoneby.com. We'll be letting you know when our Tony special will be. We usually have a wonderful time when we do it. And so, let's see, in honor of those 11 Tony nominations for the musical Once, let's hear a song from there, sung by Will Connolly, called The Moon. Cut the bombs with the moon Let the dogs gather
Another pretty song from the Broadway musical Once, which picked up 11 Tony nominations uh, just this past week. The Tony's happening on June 10th. We are going inside Broadway here on Dave's Gone By. It's 11.30 in the morning, Mountain Time. You're listening on uncradio.com. And uh, for those of you still sticking around the school, the campus, for uh, the next few weeks, don't forget you can listen to this radio station, UNC Radio, on Channel 3 on your dorm room television sets. going to do a couple of re- quick reviews for you now on Inside Broadway because I did get to go back to New York. I saw an off-Broadway show and a Broadway show. I'll tell you about them both. First of all, at the Mitzi Newhouse Theater in Lincoln Center. That's their off-Broadway space. They have a play by Amy Herzog called 4,000 Miles. And uh, the title comes from the fact that this young guy, who is a real outdoorsman, adventurous type, has been bicycling across country, taking pictures, doing, you know, living that sort of outdoorsy, unconnected, uprooted life kind of estranged from his mother, but traveling all the way from the West Coast to see his grandma, who's living on, uh, I guess it's the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And he bikes 4,000 miles to see her, yes, but also to kind of get away. To He had a, a rather bad 
tragic experience that happened on the road. Not going to say what it is. And so he, he just sort of needs to... Well, you know, he says he's not really there to stay, but of course he ends up staying at her apartment for a while. That's kind of the crux of the play. They end up forming a kind of kinship and relationship there with him staying there. He's got these things that he has to get over. She has her life all set. You know, she's got the neighbor down the hall who's there just to check up on her and vice versa. He also has an ex-girlfriend in New York that, you know, well, actually, (laughs) they're not exes when the play begins. They're still together, or so he thinks. So he's also coping with the ending of that relationship. So there's all this this stuff going around. It's not a very action-packed play. It's, It's a character study of this young man with something that's really kind of eating away at him that he's not facing, and also the way living with his grandmother and talking with her kind of brings that out. Um, I mostly liked the show. I have to give it a pretty lukewarm recommendation if, if I give it one at all. A, because just because it's almost like two and a half hours long and pretty dull in stretches. It's slice of life stuff. And we want a little more life in it. And I think the, the, the narrative problem with the play is that although they've got these two stories here, they've got the grandmother and her life in New York and her former communist radical past and how she's getting along, etc. And how you've got then the, uh, the grandson who comes into the picture and what he's dealing with. And of course they have interaction, but they don't, they're, they're more parallel than connected. We, we sort of see him go through his journey and she goes on sort of a steady path rather than any real journey. So it doesn't connect in a way that I found terribly exciting or dramatic in a, in a narrative way. And so there are definitely touching moments, and that's what saves the play. There, there are moments when, when, you know, that do get to you. But you also have to slog through a lot of stuff where, A, you're not necessarily caring very much about these people, and B, you're not really following much of an arc between them. They're just kind of two not very bumpy arcs that go on. So on the whole, I, I yeah, very, very mild thumbs up for 4,000 miles at um, Mitzi Newhouse Theater at Lincoln Center. I will say that it is always a pleasure uh, to see Mary Louise Wilson on stage. She plays the grandmother and just totally natural, believable actress. Um, Gabriel Ebert plays Leo, her grandson. He's he's a lot more animated and, but but again, because that character is so out there and a little, little almost dangerous seeming, he's interesting. But it, it's kind of an out there performance. Okay, I'm um I don't know. If you want to go see it, make up your own mind. I'm certainly not warning you against it. I was just disappointed, and you, you know how it is when you're in New York and you've got only a very limited amount of time to see shows, and you choose this one, this one, this one, this one, and then you realize, ooh, I could have seen that or that instead of this. Maybe that made me a little more disappointed than I would have been had I still been living in New York and this would have just been one of the many shows that I'd be seeing over the course of a few weeks or months. The other, another show that I did see when I was in Manhattan was the revival of a streetcar named Desire. They keep bringing this one back. They love Tennessee Williams on Broadway. Emily Mann is directing this. She's a veteran director, and it's a so-called all-black cast. 
even though there's really a lot more multi-ethnicity going on in there. There's a white person or two in there, and there's a uh, Hispanic. Daphne Rubin Vega was a guest on Dave's Gone By many years ago. Um, she might be part black, but I think she reads Hispanic. Not that this matters at all, but if you're going to... If everybody's going to be calling this the Black Streetcar Named Desire, much as they've done other plays like this where um, they bring in all black cast like On Golden Pond, they might as well, you know, get it right as far as when you're describing it. So it's a multi-ethnic cast. They have a black Stanley. They have a black Blanche. They have a partially black or Hispanic Stella. Anyway, the point is, do they do a good job of it? And I have to say that overall is a very clear and interesting and involving interpretation of Streetcar Named Desire. They do it straight, even though they've changed the ethnicity and they've, they've, it is in New Orleans. I think that kind of gets in their way a little bit, especially when you have um, Nicole Ari Parker playing Blanche Dubois, and she's doing the same accent that every Blanche Dubois I have seen is doing. I mean, I guess that is the the New Orleans female accent, but to me it just feels like just a little bit put on. And I, I, I know that Blanche does put on and is acting at points, but I, I just kind of figure, wait a minute, you know, this, this is exactly how Jessica Lange sa- sounded when she did the show, and it's how um, what's her, uh, Lee, Vivian Lee did it in the movies, that same pronunciation, and I just kind of wonder, it, it didn't feel ingrained to me in the performance. Maybe give it another week or two, it will. I did like Blair Underwood, you know, we all know him, I guess it was from L.A. Law, as Stanley. He's handsome, he's virile, he has a, a very sharp temper, and there are very clear choices made in this streetcar named Desire. We can, this particular Stanley is not one of these, um, you know, low fuse or explosive things. He is a guy who drinks and does the blackout thing, does terrible stuff, and then barely remembers it or is instantly remorseful. And I've read, you know, books about people like the Warren Zevon was like this. It is a real thing. They, they have a little too much to drink and the anger gets a hold of them and suddenly they're doing something terrible, and within 30 seconds, they're, they're screaming, they're crying, they're remorseful, Stella, Stella. So there's some of that in there, and we can see um, how Stanley is getting fed up very quickly and progressively with Blanche living in this very small um, little flat that they've got. In, Bel- in, in New Orleans, excuse me. Um, I did like Daphne Rubin Vega as Stella, not just because she's been a guest here on the show. Uh, I, I, there are times I've not liked her work at all, but I think she seems perfectly fine here as the wife. Very believable. We, we get the sense that she and Stanley are connected in a very physical, visceral way, not just battered wife syndrome, but as, as the character explains, there's more to it. There are things that happen to couples in the dark that are inexplicable, and we, we do get the sense that before Blanche Dubois comes in, he probably gets drunk and hits her once in a very blue moon, not great, and probably expects her to be at his beck and call, but at the same time, they're probably quite happy and very sexually active and fun much of the time, and that's really crucial for the Blanche and, and uh, 
stellar characters. Um, Mitch is interesting. He's played by an actor named Wood Harris. And this is a very different Mitch. This is not Carl Malden. This is not the, uh, the kind of quiet, taciturn, nice guy. This is oh, an interesting... He, this Mitch is black. I, I don't know how else to put it. He's almost like a, a Richard Pryor-y sort of shambling character. Again, basically nice guy, cares about his mother, tries to do the right thing, or, or at least he, he tries to be a perfect gentleman until he realizes or thinks that the woman he's with doesn't need uh, or deserve a perfect gentleman. That's one of the tragedies of the play. It's, it's, it's a slightly eccentric performance. He pulls it off. Um, but but it, it is an unusual take on Mitch, and it takes some getting used to. So um, I have to say the streetcar was overall worthwhile. I give it a solid three stars, mainly because they did get that ending moment right when the, uh, the people from the, uh, the sanitarium come to take... Blanche away. Now, I mean, I'm sorry I'm giving away the plot, but if you don't know the plot to A Streetcar Named Desire, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Read the play, buy the book, go to Broadway, see the show. You know, you should know it. So, they get that, that scene at the end, it is quite touching. If it weren't, if you just sat there kind of dry-eyed, that would be sort of, sort of sad. But, you know, at least we feel enough for her, for her situation, and for that, that beautiful writing towards the end of the show. I've always relied on the kindness of strangers, which is in a way true and in a way not. I was thinking about that as the show was ending. I was like, wait a minute. She's relied pretty heavily on the kindness of her sister, <laughs> if you think about it. Now, her sister, granted, went away from Belle Rev and left Blanche to cope with the dissolution of their estate. So so maybe, yeah, Blanche there had to rely on other people. But, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps overstating the case. Streetcar Named Desire, pretty good version on Broadway. Worth seeing. I don't... I think I enjoyed it or... Well, that, that's not really the word for it. I think I was a bit more captivated by the Alec Baldwin, Jessica Lange streetcar that they did a decade ago. Um... I think the star power was kind of nice to have. Not that these people don't have star power, but you know, I found that more gripped by it than I was by a lot of this one. Still, really, if I were given the choice between two revivals, the Mike Nichols' Death of a Salesman and this Emily Mann streetcar, I'd probably give the edge to the streetcar. No, that's, that's just me. Anyway, we've been inside Broadway here on Dave's Gone By on this May 5th, Cinco de Mayo on Dave's Gone By. Let's, let's hear, yeah, Liz Fair's song about that.
from her second full-length album, Whip Smart. That was Liz Fair with Cinco de Mayo on the Cinco of Mayo. Uh, let's see, Dos Mil y... Doce. Dos Mil Doce. I, ju- I just finished taking a semester-long Spanish course at, the, at UNC. So I'm trying to remember little pockets of Spanish here and there now that my final exam is over. Uh, you know, I, I, I've forgotten everything. The verb tenses, the conjugations, the subjunctive, the preterite, the imperfect. I don't care. <laughs> I thought it was going to be so much easier. <clears throat> oh, pardon me. Pardon me. Mm. I thought um, it would be so much easier for me to uh, get through the course and uh, you know just breeze through it because I took it in high school and stuff and thought, oh I'll brush up on Spanish I'll be able to talk to people and instead it's like you know you, the root form of yo and then you change that from an e to an a I was like oh no no more and you you do this with a mandate command and oh no thank you por versus para <laughs> k and Qual and los qual and qual. At least that part wasn't on the test. I'm done. I'm done. And it is Cinco de Mayo on um, here in Colorado, northern Colorado, where we're doing Dave's Gone By. We're going to have our Bob Dylan segment coming up almost immediately, and then we will close the show. Um, you know, well, we're here till one o'clock, but um, we'll close the show with a segue in honor of. Radio broadcaster Pete Fornatel, who passed about a week and a half ago. But before all of that, I forgot to give you the um, the sponsors, the people who make this program possible, the wonderful folks. For example, at Hewlett Minuteman Press, the copy kings of Broadway since the mid 1970s, the Torong family has owned and operated Hewlett Minuteman Press right in the heart of Hewlett, New York, about two blocks from the Hewlett train station right across the street from the Lomans that's there. Why should you patronize Hewlett Minuteman Press as opposed to some other copy shop? Well, because they do good quality work in a very reasonable, timely fashion for very reasonable, timely prices. And... If you tell them Dave sent you, you get 10% off any copy job, big or small, at Hewlett Minuteman Press. They've been working with me since I've been doing this show. They've been my sponsors. I still use their services sometimes um, you know, for uh, the work I do for the journal Performing Arts Insider that I'll tell you about. Even though they're 2,000 miles away back in New York, I still deal with the Torong family and Hewlett Minuteman Press. So should you. For copying Binding, putting uh, your company's logo on pens or golf balls or calendars, dealing with holiday cards and wedding invitations. They do it all. Give them a call at 516-569-5577. Area code 516-569-5577. Hewlett Minuteman Press. They are the copy kings. I mentioned Performing Arts Insider. They're another sponsor of ours. I work directly with them. And this is a hard copy journal. It's an old-fashioned actual magazine. You get it in the mail, in your post box, so you can read it on the train, on the plane, at your desk, on the toilet, if you so desire. If you want to know everything about what's happening 
on the stages of New York. What shows are playing on, off, and off-off Broadway? And not just the basic information you can get in the newspaper. I'm talking stuff you really have to dig for, except you don't have to dig for it. It's in the pages of Performing Arts Insider. If you want to know how to get in touch with an actor in a particular show, if you want to know how to reach the designers, who's the press agent, who's the producer's, on the show and what are their contact information plus if you're interested in gossip on what shows might be coming to Broadway in a year or two or three all of that info in the pages of Performing Arts Insider as well as um, chronological calendar listings of what's happening in Cabaret what awards and special events are occurring in and around New York also opera and dance in the pages of PAI. For more information, go to performingartsinsider.com, performingartsinsider.com. And the parent company, by the way, of PAI is Total Theater, which aggregates bunches of reviews of Broadway, off-Broadway, and shows from all over the world. So you go there, you surf, and you can read a review of the latest Broadway opening, or a show that might be coming out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or Los Angeles, California, or a fringe festival, maybe the Edinburgh Fringe, or the Louisville shows that they do out there at the Actors Theater. It's all free. See, Performing Arts Insider Bulletin, that's a, um, you have to pay for that. It's pretty expensive, though worth every penny. Totaltheater.com, 100% free. Just go there, totaltheater.com, and plus not only reviews, but articles and feature stories and interviews of people making theater around the world. And finally, Dave's Gone By is brought to you by Fancy Schmancy Balloons for all your party and decorating needs in the tri-state area. Give Jeff Goodman a call, 516-776-0600 is his number, 516-776-0600. It's called Fancy Schmancy Balloons, but remember, he's not just making balloon animals or, or blowing up like these helium balloons. He makes balloon archways. He designs... um centerpieces for your tables out of foam core and styrofoam and cardboard and other things and makes your party look special. If you have a, a kid who's having a bar mitzvah and they want a Colorado Rockies theme or a New York Yankees theme or they're into Star Trek or they're into the Hunger Games, Jeff can take that theme and make the party look terrific around it. 516 7760600 shouldn't your party be a fancy schmancy affair well it is 11:52 in the morning going to get started a little early on our Bob Dylan sooner and later segment so that we have enough time to really uh, pay good tribute to Pete Fornatel later. It is Cinco de Mayo. Now, we have a Cinco de Mayo song to play from Bob Dylan, but the main topic of our Dylan sooner and later set is France. The reason being, um, there's an exhibit at the Cité de la Musique Museum in Paris. Right now, they're having a retrospective called Bob Dylan, Rock Explosion, 1961 to 1966. And it sounds pretty cool. It doesn't sound like they have anything really that special that, that, that you wouldn't find on the Internet. But they have the Daniel Kramer photographs, you know, those famous ones. And they've got um, a lot of posters and album art. And they'll, they have a big screen where they'll be showing clips from Don't Look Back. 
the uh, Pennybacker documentary, and also interviews with influences on him and uh, you know some of their music playing as well. So it's all at the Cité de la Musique Museum in Paris, France. So in honor of that, we're also going to be playing Paris and France songs, songs that Bob Dylan wrote and sings, or at least the ones that he wrote. Sometimes we'll do a cover version that mention France or things French somewhere in there. So, francophones, please take note of our Bob Dylan segment. But first, we'll go Spanish. We'll go Mexican. We'll go to the fifth day in May when he meets ISIS. Yeah. 
Dave's Gone By on UNC Radio. It is noon. Bob Dylan, sooner and later. There was a time when men ought to follow God. The time is right now. If I were you, I'd make up in my mind, my mind, my mind, my mind, my mind. Come on over on the wrong side. I was reading the other day.
construction worker working on your home. You may be living in a mansion. You may be living in a dome. You might own guns and knives, even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. You've got to serve somebody. But I'm thanking you today. With your spiritual pride, you might be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may be cutting a hair. You may be somebody's mistress. You may be somebody's heir. Ooh, have to serve somebody. Make up in your mind to come on the wrong side. Correct 
having no money paid them off in tax They pay no respect to their two bloody backs Every lad of them they're like a pal wet sack I left them for dead in the morning And so to conclude and to finish this speech We obligingly ask if they wanted recruits But we were the lads who'd have give them our clouds And bid them look sharp in the Said like I should, let's go find this lady who can do me some good We walked across the river on a sailing spree And we come to a door called 103 About ready to give my little knock When out comes a fella who couldn't even walk He's linking and a slinking, couldn't stand on his feet And he moaned and he groaned and he shuffled down the street Well, out of the door, there come another man He wiggled and he wobbled, he couldn't hardly stand He had his fist fighting, look in his eye like he just Fought a baron, he was ready to die Well, I peeked through the key crack Coming down the hall was a long-legged man Who could hardly crawl He muttered and he uttered and broke in French And he looked like he'd been through a monkey ranch To knock, I wasn't scared to move, I was in a state of shock. I hummed a little tune and I shuffled my feet and I started walking backwards down Rampart Street. Well, I got to the corner, I tried my best to smile. I turned around the corner and I ran a bloody mile. Man, I wasn't running cause I was sick, I just running to get out of there quick. 
tripping along and I'm wheezing in my chest. I must have run a mile in a minute or less. I walked on a log and I tripped on a stump. I caught a fast freight train with a one-armed jump. So if you're traveling down Louisiana way and you need feeling kind of lonesome and you need a place to stay, then you're better off in your misery than to tackle that lady at Woodle Three.
Dark Eyes from Empire Burlesque. Bob Dylan there. Our Bob Dylan Sooner and Later set here on Dave's Gone By. And, uh, well, we started with Cinco de Mayo, a little bit of uh, Cinco de Mayo song there, Isis, the live version from the bootleg 1975 Rolling Thunder set, which is, by the way, different from the live version from that Rolling Thunder era that you got on the Biograph collection. Those are two different versions. They're both great. So, uh, but this is the the one that they more recently released in the bootleg series, Isis, where he says, I married Isis on the fifth day of May. But all the rest of the songs in that Bob Dylan set had to do with France, because they're having, as I mentioned, the uh, Bob Dylan exhibit at the Cité de la Musique Museum in Paris. Bob Dylan, Rock Explosion, 1961 to 66. So in honor of that, we played songs that mention Paris or France or things francophonic, such as, well, what we played in that set was uh, Shirley Caesar singing Gotta Serve Somebody. That's from the Masters... Um, well, what, yeah, let me tell you what uh, album that was from. I was going to say it was from I'm Not There, but I don't think it is. It was from... Do, 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 uh, Masked and Anonymous, that, that strange movie that Dylan did a few years back. Anyway, kind of rollicking version of Gotta Serve Somebody with the line, You may be an ambassador to England or France. We also heard in that set Bob Dylan doing Arthur McBride, an old standard that came from the Good As I Been To You album. And the line there is, For you'd have no scruples for to send us to France from Bob Dylan's New Orleans Rag, a very, very weird rarity that I found on uh, the Internet this week. So that that's not available anywhere, but you heard it here on Dave's Gong by Bob Dylan's New Orleans Rag. He muttered and he uttered in broken French is the line in that. And then we heard Dark Eyes, beautiful classic song from Empire Burlesque, Oh, the French girl, she's in paradise. And it's paradise doing this radio program for you. It's called Dave's Gone By. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, been doing the show since 2002, and we're here every Saturday at uncradio.com, and our archived shows are at davesgoneby.com. So, what are we going to do now? Yeah... It's time to bid uh, farewell to a guest on this program only six months ago. You know, I got it into my head um, a few months ago to start interviewing more comedians and more radio people. Just because, you know, that, that interests me. I mean, I've done a lot of music people over the years and theater people. But it occurred to me, how come I'm not talking to more comedians since I love comedy so much? So I've been doing more of that. And then every once in a while... I'll find a radio person, like uh, years ago we had Valerie Smaldone on from New York Radio, and uh, I've had Dr. Demento, of course, and Joe Franklin, and who else? And uh, Oh, these people I mentioned before, uh, the opera fanatic who was on WKCR, uh, Stefan Zucker is on. I mean, just here and there, gotten some people who do what I do and always like to talk radio, talk shop, and music, and what they do. So um, it was great to be able to chat back in December with Pete Fornatel, who is a radio New York legend. 
literally from the mid-1960s on up until just a couple of weeks ago. So I was talking to Pete just because he still was doing his weekly radio show on WFUV, the radio station of uh, Fordham University in the Bronx, which is where he was raised college-wise. That was his university. That's where he started in radio. So he made this, this trek, as it were, to, to circle back to WFUV in Fordham. And in between, I think he was on K-Rock for a while, and then, of course, the, the heyday, those glory years of WNEW-FM in New York. Major important radio station coming out of the, the freeform 1960s college radio era. And so what you had was people like Vin, Vin Skelza, and Pete Fornatel, and folks in that realm like Allison Steele and um, Meg Griffin, who took radio a little more seriously, not not made it so funereal serious, but it wasn't just about demographics, and it wasn't about playing the top 40 songs all the time, or going bumper to bumper with cute little noises and, and you know silly stuff and contests, and just playing what the playlist told you to play, but really digging deep into music that you happen to like, you know, so you weren't just a hired gun, you weren't like one of these DJs, and I, I, I feel bad for them it's not that I resent them or dislike them, but you'll get a DJ who's on a top 40 station and, you know, things don't go well, so he leaves and he goes to a country music station because they're hiring, and suddenly he's a country music DJ, and then they end up flipping formats, and he's out of a job, so now he has to go running to another state, and suddenly he's doing a playlist of, uh, you know, R&B or AAA or Urban or whatever the hell it is, Lady Gaga stuff. And that's how you somehow cobble together a basic career in radio unless you're a Don Imus or, a, or Howard Stern. You have to just go where the money is, go where the jobs are, and the jobs aren't forever. The formats, unfortunately, are not forever. Everything flips. Everything changes. People come in thinking they've got a better idea. You know, they, they had, uh, you know, 400,000 listeners, now they've only got 370,000 listeners that means they're in trouble, so they have to change the format and start all over from scratch, and this occurs every 7 to 10 years in a radio station's life so um, Pete Fornatel had a bit of that, but had more of a charmed existence in radio he had usually more of the wherewithal and ability to play more of the stuff that he wanted to play, and especially in the past several years when he bent, went back to college radio and they took the fetters off him and he didn't even have to play commercials, just, just inside, you know, uh, things, bumpers for the, the non-commercial radio station. So if they were having a concert or something or they're fundraising, he had to do that. And they said, okay, do your, do your show because you play the kind of music we play on WFUV anyway. So go ahead and do it, and do your segues, which is what he was probably best known for after a while, of that, that putting together a whole bunch of songs of the, on the same theme, which I have done here on Dave's Gone By for many years. Now, I'm not saying that uh, Pete Fornatal invented the segue any more than I did, but I'm saying that that was his thing, and he did it well, and he, he, he could do the kind of radio 
where you didn't have to just play two songs in a commercial and then you're off to something else. You could string together 10 or 15 songs on a theme and the listener would be intrigued and say, oh, I wonder what they're going to play next. Hey, how does that song fit in with the theme of the day? Whether the theme is some holiday or Thanksgiving or the color green, whatever it is. It's fun. It gets the listener involved. It connects the DJ to the listener. And, and, and I think Pete Pornatel was very, very much about that. And it was also about giving breaks and air exposure to people like Suzanne Vega, like John Gorka, and uh, our friend of this radio show, Christine Lavin, who was on here. And there, there's um, a quote from his Associated Press obituary that says... Um, Sean Colvin told the New York Times in 2001, Pete helped pave the way for so many of us. He was a rare guy in radio then, certainly in, in those um, 90s and aughts, when radio, a lot of it was so terrible, and there was no place to go. You know, I, I, I've gone back and forth on this as far as WFUV, the, the radio station of Fordham University in the Bronx. It remains a really terrific station. I like the music that they play. I like the style of it. KUNC has a, a bit of that, too, here in Colorado. But it also bothered me, being someone who's connected to college and in some ways a perennial student and who, who looks out for the interests of college students, it bugged me that this university... Uh, with a very, very strong good signal, would have a commercial kind of radio station, even though it was non-commercial, even though they had to do all their money from fundraising and from grant funding. But still, the people that you would put on, or, or put on right now on WFUV, are professional radio folks who've worked in radio for decades. And what happened was, they were doing good radio, playing the music they wanted to play, that kind of 60s, 70s, folk, rock, pop mix, and formats would change, or they get bounced from places like K-Rock and WNEW and whatever the other you know, commercial radio stations are. They had no place to go, and FUV became the Foreign Legion. So you have a, fit, a Vin Skelza, a Meg Griffin, um, a Pete Fornatel there doing their shows and their kind of stuff, which was great in a way that they had that outlet and we could hear them, but it bugged me that it was a college radio station, a place where really the students should be on the air, not just reading the occasional traffic report or doing the, the Fordham football report, but they should be doing the shows, running the shows, doing the station kind of like what we do here at UNC in a much smaller way. And that always bothered me. And I was always quite proud of my alma mater, NYU, that um, you know, here's this monster university, borderline Ivy League, it's not, but certainly rich enough and big enough and, and expansive enough to be Ivy League. And if you put on NYU, I think they have an FM frequency, maybe an AM one too. But what you're going to hear is students learning their craft, playing what they want to play, or playing within the genre, let's say, of the modern hip music, the CMJ kind of stuff that NYU radio would play. And that's great. You know, I believe in that. It's a college. Why aren't the studio, uh, the students running the radio station? That's the point. You know, they might have a bit of faculty on there and faculty advisors, of course, 
to make sure things go okay. So it bothers me when a station like FUV is really all professional and just does lip service to, to allow basically college students to file the CDs away. <laughs> Not that anybody's really using CDs there anymore, I'll bet. But anyway, that's, that's besides the point. In retrospect, I'm also really glad, because if it weren't for that radio station, would we have been able to listen to Pete Fornatel for the past decade, and Vin Skelza, and Meg, and, and I guess Tony Pig is there now, too. I mean, you know, all these, these New York radio legends are there. And on Mixed Bag, every Saturday for three, four hours, you could hear Pete play the kind of music he wanted to, the segues, the interviews. And, of course, um, as we spoke about when uh, Pete was on my show half a year ago, he was writing books. He had written about Woodstock. And, and the amazing thing is he's probably as connected as anyone other than maybe Scott Muni in radio with the whole Woodstock experience. And he wasn't there, <laughs> in some ways rather luckily. He didn't have to brave the mud and the rain and the traffic jams and the, the lack of bathroom facilities and what have you and lack of food and the craziness of Woodstock. No, he, he was back in the studio, but he was the DJ who was there while it was happening and believed in it and promoted it and forwarded the the idea that this little concert up in Bethel, New York, was, was suddenly growing. And it wasn't going to be 10,000 kids. It was, wasn't going to be 30,000. It was going to be 50,000. It was going to be half a million strong, as the song goes. And he became... You know, as 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 fun as it could be to make fun of Pete Fornatel, because he could be in that naive, Woodstocky, sing-songy, like, oh, wouldn't the world be great? And he was one of the muscles behind Hunger Thong on FUV, where he and Harry Chapin, I, I guess, helped co-found that together. Of around Thanksgiving time, I assume, or maybe another time of year, they would raise money for people who couldn't afford to eat. And, and, and it was great, but it made for pretty boring radio. Uh, and, and, and you always felt, like, bad if you weren't as humanitarian and idealistic as Harry Chapin and Pete Fornitale. You were like, oh, they're being goody-goody. They're raising their money for the hunger thong. And it's, it's bad enough that this non-commercial station is hawking us twice a year for donations and memberships. Now they're, they're taking another week or two and hocking us to pay for food, I, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I'm not much of a donator. I admit, I, I never gave. I guess I should have. I'm sorry, Pete, but you know, it, it could be, it could be kind of an easy one to make fun of because there wasn't that level of world weary cynicism that creeps into, say, Vin Skelza, whom I listen to all the time. You know, there was a little bit more of that uh, golly gee pie in the sky stuff, even though he was a very bright an erudite man, and had lived long enough to know that Woodstock was no ideal, you know, that Woodstock and Altamont were two sides of incredibly opposite sides of the coin. They each had positives and negatives, and there's a lot of gray area going on. And then I didn't even realize Pete has children when he was divorced, so he couldn't have been perfect. You know, <laughs> he was a man. You know, he was a basic guy, a writer, a radio person, which probably meant he was a little... Um, probably a little to himself and a little very involved with the music and the work that he was doing and maybe a little neglectful in other things. I'm just, um, 
I, I'm just bringing into myself here, of course, but I'm I'm you know just spitballing as as to you know just saying Pete was Pete. He had his pluses. He had his minuses. Certainly, you know, I don't think anybody else in the world really wanted to listen to Poco. He loved it. He, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young, sure. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, all right, some people want to listen to that. And then Poco, no, sorry, but somehow <laughs> he was into them. And, and what else? He was really big on Aztec's two-step. Kind of a talented uh, little group, but I, I, I don't imagine if Pete weren't playing Aztec two-step, I wonder if anybody else in the world would be. But that's okay. You know, the DJs get their... their their special connections and the bands that they really like and the bands that they become friends with and sort of become part of the whole show as years pass. So you, so you let that go. You know, it's part of the whole zeitgeist that was Mixed Bag and Pete Fornatel. So I never... I, I may have met him once back when I was doing theater reviews on WFUV. I'm sorry that I don't remember meeting him. If I did, it was probably very nice and quick and very gentle, as he seemed to be. And I'm very glad, as I said, that I got to talk to him and interview him on Dave's Gone By back in December. And if you want to hear that, it's in our archives. Just go to davesgoneby.com. Had a marvelous conversation. As I mentioned earlier, he was, um, he was battling a cold back then, back in this midwinter. But oh, that was all it was. I, I, I assume I had nothing to do with the massive stroke that took him uh, Thursday week. And then and you know, he, he suffered under the stroke for a couple of days, and then he died uh, just around last Saturday or Sunday. When was it? It was, um, does it say? Um, it was, I th- maybe he lasted a week. I'm, I'm, I don't have the exact details here. But um, he's gone. I'm reading the info on this. He was, let's see, um, this is kind of nice. In 2001, Pete himself was interviewed. He said that Mixed Bag and the radio that he did all those years on New York radio involved complete freedom to put the package together. For better or worse, it stamped me then and was still with him back in, in 2001. And up until, I think, April 14th was his last mixed bag. So, you know, right right up to that very last moment, uh, we had Pete Fornatel playing the music for him. I, I beg WFUV um, in the Bronx, Fordham University, and, and you can listen to them on FUV.org, and you can hear the other... Um, DJs, their shows are archived for a week or two, so you can go back and hear their tributes to P. Fornatel, uh, the one that Vin did, and I'm, I'm sure some of the others did as well. But it would be nice if FUV and some of the other radio stations, K Rock, maybe, or whatever became of K Rock, or whatever NEW turned into, if they have tapes, if they have the archives, you know, let them loose, put them on your websites. Uh, FUV, they only have two weeks worth of archives because it's obviously bandwidth is very expensive and also they have to deal with rights issues with ASCAP and BMI and NARIS so their their compromise was only having two weeks worth of audio archives on their website which is usually okay you know if you keep up with the radio station and you want to listen to a show you try and make sure you catch it within two weeks or else it's gone but 
would be nice if you got more than a decade worth of shows that Fornitel did for the station. Post them up. Share them. Even for just a little while. Get a special dispensation so we can hear Pete Fornitel in 1998. You know, Pete Fornitel circa 2003. Pete Fornitel two years ago. Pete Fornitel, you know, a month ago. As opposed to, you know, just the most recent stuff. I think that would be a a nice thing and a, 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 just an obviously logical, basic thing to do. So, uh, just, just my thoughts. If anybody from FUV is listening or any friends of Pete's, uh, I was contacted by a couple of folks who said, oh, great, you know, you're doing a, a Pete for an Atel tribute. So that, that that's the bigger tribute. More than anything I could say, more than anything Meg Griffin or Vin Skelza could say or Zachary, who <laughs> was back doing radio back then, or, or any Allison Steele, whoever he was in contact with, and, and programming directors and so forth, and, and uh, Darren DeVivo over at FUV, let them, uh, let them dig up his stuff. Let them share some of his more special shows, or even some of his run-of-the-mill shows, because those are just as important. And in honor of Pete Fornitel, I guess the best way to honor him for me is to play some of the music that he would have played and would have liked and the kind of stuff that he did. It's a segue that is, um, has it as its theme, Just Remembering Pete. We'll start with the birds and going back. There's more 
Sad. She made my days go wrong. 
made my night so long You got to keep in mind Love is here Today and it's gone Tomorrow is here And gone so Roaming, lying by the roadside, seeking a satisfied 
many highways, too many byways, and nobody's walking behind. But if somehow you could pack up your sorrows and give them all to me, you'd lose them. I know how to use them. Give them all to me. Early Judy Collins there from her fifth album, actually, Pack Up Your Sorrows. And we do have to do some packing up here from uh, the neighborhood because we're finishing our show on this May 5th, 2012 and finishing our little segue to uh, Pete Fornatel, remembering him by playing some of the kinds of songs that he played um, on his shows for many, many years. In fact, let's see what we heard. We heard in that short set... Judy Collins, Pack Up Your Sorrows. We heard the Beach Boys doing Here Today. Apparently one of the most proud and exciting moments in Pete's life was um, being able to introduce the Beach Boys. They were getting back together, and he walked out on stage holding a surfboard. Um, You know, it's one of those cool things. It's like a major thing, but you know how rock and roll is. Lady Gaga enters in an egg, and everybody remembers it. So Pete Fornatelli and a surfboard, kind of an iconic moment in Pete's life, in uh, in his excitement of being able to introduce the Beach Boys. We um, also heard a beautiful little song from Paul Simon there, Simon and Garfunkel, Song for the Asking, and the Birds Going Back. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I'm going to be going back to my home and leaving this lovely radio station on this Saturday. But not before I thank some people and also mention some friends of the neighborhood. You've got uh, Marilyn May is finishing her stint tonight at Feinstein's at the Lowe's Regency. That's on Park Avenue and 61st Street in Manhattan. Marilyn May, fine singer. She was on our show back in 2007. So, yeah, I'm sure she'll be back. But if you can, catch her tonight, one more night, in her stint at Feinstein's. Linda Lavin. God, I've been talking a lot about her today. Not only can you see her on Broadway in the very darkly funny Nikki Silver play, The Lions, but she's doing two nights at the Metropolitan Room today and tomorrow. Maybe they're afternoons, depending on her matinee schedule. Anyway, she's, uh, she's singing and doing her thing at the Metropolitan Room today and tomorrow. And then, ah, Jane Sibbery a.k.a. Issa, but then back to Jane Sibbery. She's on tour with Katie Lang doing a national tour, and that begins on May 8th and going all the way through June 6th. So it's a month-long tour. If, uh, if you've never seen Jane Sibbery in concert, it's very, very special stuff. I've seen her, oh gosh, back almost when I was a student in the 1980s, and already you know, she was amazing. So still is. Catch her. And, and of course, catch Kagan Lang, <laughs> Lang on that tour. Um, let's see what else, what else, what else. On May 17th, Bill German will be signing his book Under Their Thumb at New York Public Library, uh, the branch at 10th Street and 6th Avenue. That's at 7 o'clock. You want to catch Carrie Hoffman doing My Sinatra at Sophia's in Manhattan. That's an ongoing run. See Christine Petty doing the uh, two off-Broadway shows, Musical and Miss Abigail's Guide to Dating, Mating, and Marriage. You want to subscribe to drdemento.com and hear brand new Dr. Demento episodes. Yeah, I keep telling everybody, he's not only alive... 
He's still doing his show. He's just not doing it on terrestrial radio or on satellite. If you want to hear Dr. Demento, go to drdemento.com. You're going to pay like $2 a show for his two-hour show, or $4 if you really want high-quality audio. And, of course, he's got tons of archives there. And I think he has annual memberships as well. So check out drdemento.com. Also, read Alan Schurstuhl's hilarious column, Studies in Crap, in San Francisco Weekly. And, of course, San Francisco Weekly Online. Wonderful column by Alan Schurstuhl, S-C-H-E-R-S-T. U-H-L. And finally, everybody, go see Perfect Crime. They just passed this enormous landmark, 25 years off-Broadway, uninterrupted run, featuring uh, Catherine Russell. She was our guest in the neighborhood about a month ago, just around the time of the anniversary. And she has, as, as we said then, she has done all but four performances of the thousands that they have done at Perfect Crime since the show opened back, oh my gosh, let's see, it would have been 89? Something like that. Anyway, Perfect Crime still running at the uh, Snapple Theater in Times Square in Manhattan. Definitely worth a look. want to thank a few people for making this particular episode of Dave's Gone By so much fun and uh, so great to do. First of all, thank you to my lovely wife, Joyce. I hope she's having a fine day in Castle Rock today. Um, thank you to general manager of this radio station, Sam Wood, without whom this station would not be. And, of course, thank you to Rabbi Saul Solomon. You want to find out more about him? Go to Shalom, damn it. Com. That is his blog. You can read his rabbinical reflections there. You can also find a bunch of things about Rabbi Saul on YouTube, including the live stage show that he did in New York in March and that he's hoping to bring back to New York in late summer. It's called Shalom Dammit, an evening with Rabbi Saul Solomon. They did a fine job videotaping it on the second day of the performance. So if, you wanna, if you're curious, if you want to give it a look, and if you want to see, oh, maybe I want to see this show, find it on YouTube. It's uh, Shalom Dammit. And of course, just look for Rabbi Saul Solomon on YouTube. He even has a Twitter feed, which I believe is Rabbi Saul Solomon, and a Facebook page, and whatever else. Look for him. Look for me, too, in all these places. Um, I've got a Facebook page, and the MySpace for Dave's Gone By is where you can see the playlist of this show should have mentioned that earlier in the program because we update the playlist while the show is going on. So just go to myspace.com forward slash, or well, uh, now nah, nah, you got to search for it. You, you can't just do the URL. Just go to myspace.com and then search for Dave's Gone By. And of course, as I'll tell you one more time, if you go to davesgoneby.com, you also see the playlists and all the audio archives and the history of the show and so much other stuff. davesgoneby.com. I think that takes care of that. And thank you also very much to Glenna Friedman, who was instrumental in setting up our chat, or Rabbi Saul Solomon's chat, with Jake Ehrenreich. Everybody go to ajewgrowsinbrooklyn.com and see A Jew Grows in Brooklyn off-Broadway at the Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis Center right in Midtown Manhattan. Not, Not Center, Theater. The Onassis Theater in Midtown Manhattan. It's an open run. Go see it. I saw it a couple of years ago. It's really fun and, and touching in spots. 
nice show, and you know, people all over the country are digging it. Why shouldn't you? Jake Ehrenreich's A Jew grows in Brooklyn. Well, it's 1.04 p.m., and so before this episode of the show grows time-wise out of bounds, gotta pack up and go. Pack up our joys and our sorrows. Gotta dedicate one last song to the late radio broadcaster Pete Fornatel. It's a song he's played bunches of times, and the album that um, it's on is where he took the name for his radio show, Mixed Bag. It was that first Richie Havens album, and uh, a lot of good songs on it. But this is this is the one you'll recognize it. You'll know it if you listen to Pete at all over the years. Nice little tune that uh, ends Mixed Bag, I believe, or it might be the first, the last song on the first side. Not 100% sure. But anyway, once more, congratulations to all the UNC graduates. You had the, the grad graduates yesterday, and I had the undergrad graduates today. Hope they're having a wonderful time. Um, hope they all go on to help improve and change the world for the better. They never will. They never do. But maybe one or maybe there are some diamonds in there who will. The rest of us just get by. Try and find good luck. Try and find the job. And if you find the job, really grow into the job, and then find me one. That would be nice. I would like that. Anyway, good luck to all of them and to all of you. We'll be back next week, ten in the morning till one in the afternoon for another episode of Dave's Gone By. Not sure who will be on it yet. We've got some guests lined up, and we do have our guest lined up already for May nineteenth. At least one of them. We know that uh, members of the band Shoo Shoo will, will be with us in two more Saturdays. X I U. XIU is the band. You may want to look them up and check them out. Very avant-garde and interesting rock band. And we'll be talking to the founder of Shoo Shoo on Dave's Gone By. But that's not that's two weeks away. Next week, not sure yet. You'll just have to email me, Dave's Gone By at AOL.com and get on our mailing list to uh, to find out. Either way, it'll be worth listening to. You know that. And thank you for listening today. Have a great week, a great graduation, a great life. And gone by. Let the river rock you like a cradle. Climb to the treetops, child, if you're able. Let your hands tie a knot across the table Come and touch the things you cannot feel And close your fingertips And fly where I can't hold you Let the sun rain fall And let the dewy clouds enfold you And maybe you can sing to me the words I just told you If all the things you feel ain't what they sing Then don't mind me Cause I ain't nothing but a dream The mockingbird Sings each different song 
song has wings, they won't stay long. To those who hear, think he's doing wrong. While the church bell tolls its one note song, and the school bell is tinkling to the throng. Come here where your ears cannot hear And close your ears to trial and listen to what I'll tell you Follow in the darkest night the sounds that may impel you And the song that I am singing may disturb or serve to quell you All the sound you hear ain't what they sing Then don't mind me Cause I ain't nothing but a dream The rising smell of fresh cut grass Smothered city Choke and yell with fuming gas I hold some grapes up to the sun And their flavor breaks upon my tongue With eager tongues we taste our strife And fill Our lungs with seas of life Come taste and smell the waters of our time And close your lips, child So softly I might kiss you Let your flower perfume out And let the winds caress you As I walk on through the garden, I am hoping I don't miss you. If all the things you taste ain't what they seem, then don't mind me, cause I ain't nothing but a dream. Sun and moon both are right, and we'll see them soon through days of night. But now silver leaves on mirrors bring delight, and the color of your eyes are fiery bright. While darkness. Blind the skies with all its light Come see where your eyes cannot see Then close your eyes, child And look at what I'll show you Let your mind go reeling out And let the breezes blow you And maybe when we meet, the 
suddenly I will know you If all the things you see ain't what they seem Then don't mind me Cause I ain't nothing but a dream And you can follow Can follow, follow. 